Colette began as a cheap pickpocket, using her charm, grace, and quick fingers to lift valuables from men with more than enough wealth to sustain them both. Although beautiful and quick to prey upon the careless advances of men hoping to lure her into a night of private debauchery, Colette would never succumb to the activities of a lady of the night. Instead, she gave in to the inner drive to always fulfill an insatiable ambition. Burlesque shows and cheap sleight-of-hand tricks allowed her to mesmerize dozens of men at a time, all eager to garner her attention and favor. Mere parlor illusions were quickly forgotten when she arrived in Malifaux. Passing through the breach, she knew almost immediately that her skills of ledger domain were just the hint of a truer power. Once more following her ambitions to be ever better, she acquired her first soul stones, and her potential was fully realized. Her arcane thirst proved nearly as insatiable as her drive and determination, yet her illusions became more and more real, and her skills more diverse and more phenomenal. Colette quickly understood how to drain a soul stone and use its spiritual energy to fuel her explosive displays. Unlike other masters of the arcane arts, however, Colette gathered a troop of girls with similar skills and made no secret among them about the use of soul stones. They worked in a secret pact to learn the uses of sorcery and hone their art by which they might acquire more power, wealth, and subsequent freedom. Legendary accounts of the burlesque and magician shows have spread beyond the city's borders and have migrated Earthside, leading more and more travelers to come, no longer just to stake their own claim in the wilds of Malifaux, but to see the fabulous girls dance, perform unbelievable shows of magic, and gaze upon wondrous advances in technology as mechanized dancers, human-sized dolls, dance upon the stage alongside their beautiful flesh and blood counterparts. Colette and her girls thought they had found true success when they were given great payment for excess soul stones acquired in the quiet and dim movements after each show. It wasn't long after, however, that Colette discovered her success and power came with a much higher price. Although famous and truly rich, she now struggles to keep her powers a secret from the guild officers that come to see her perform every evening. The Arcanist movement relies upon her to move their illicit wares in the black market, leaving her no time to enjoy the freedom she's earned. All eyes are upon her, and her freedom is nothing but an illusion. On occasion, Miss Dubois' burlesque is replaced with more sophisticated entertainment, the ballet. Colette's performers are more than vaudevillian actors. They are classically trained dancers performing with delicate constructs to demonstrate the grace and beauty of both the human and construct form. These real and artificial performers create a performance unlike any other on Malifaux. Some come to witness the spectacle of constructs and intricate performances, while others are held wrapped by the pure beauty of it all, never once considering Corifee performing the dances alongside humans as less than experts at their craft. Miss Dubois deftly evades any inquiries regarding her Corifee's cost. She's able to turn requests for the name of the artist capable of creating such masterpieces into discussions about technique and where their skills could be further improved. By keeping the secret of her clockwork troupe, she further enhances its mystique and fills the seats nightly. Few know that the graceful figures they witness on stage have the potential to be as deadly as they are beautiful. With a few alterations, these clockwork entertainers are transformed into deadly combatants. The Corifee's delicate porcelain mask worn during performances is stowed away, showing the featureless metallic head, and its brass hands are removed, replaced with long blades. A Corifee's passure choreographs speed and lethality in equal measures. Its motion is almost mercurial as it nimbly strikes its foes. It weaves through complex steps, lashing out with its blades while avoiding the clumsy efforts of its enemies. Few would argue the skill needed to design a construct as beautiful and functional as a Corifee, and those who do often find themselves as its next dance partner. Building on the talents of a single Corifee, a duet of these amazing constructs reaches a new height of technical achievement and beauty. Where one Corifee's performance is a masterpiece, its ability to play off the talents of its counterpart is nothing more than miraculous. Both hit their marks, the gestures and movements of each a mere image of the other. This perfection is amazing to behold, and the audience is lost in its symmetrical perfection. With lethal grace, the Corifee duet dances a 
complicated staccato, their dress sabers flashing in the stage lights as they cut and whirl. Eventually, the ballet must come to an end, its awe-inspiring synchronicity etched forever in the minds of those who witness it. A beautiful accompaniment to Colette Dubois' magnificent stage performances, her mechanical doves rarely fail to elicit awestruck gasps from the audience. The intricately assembled constructs are both aesthetic and technical masterpieces. The platinum feathers were individually handcrafted, the beak and claws shaped in polished brass, and the two sparkling sapphires for eyes. Within this unequaled work of art beats a complex heart of clockwork machinery, giving the dove artificial life. First-time visitors to Miss Dubois' shows are unprepared for the mechanical dove's ability to fly like the flesh-and-bone bird it was designed to mimic. On stage, it is revealed on a metal perch, watching Miss Dubois' movements with interest, convincing the audience it is simply a complex puppet of some sort. At the climax of her act, she gestures into the audience and the bird leaps into the air, circling the crowd three times before settling back onto its perch. Gasps of delight and surprise drown out the metallic clink of the dove's wings until it lands, then thunderous applause fills the air. Just like her Corofe dancers, Miss Dubois definitely avoids questions about the artist who designed the dove for her and where she had it built, knowing that, in part, her show's draw is the lure of the unknown. Giving out such trade secrets would be like robbing herself of future profits, something Miss Dubois would never do willingly. Anyone can belt out a few off-key tunes to an inebriated audience. The Diamond Dozen Saloon Girls and Hack Entertainers stuffing Boomtown Saloons and dance halls prove this. However, for talented female artists seeking a name for themselves, no better venue exists in Malifaux than Colette Dubois' Star Theater. Women seeking employment at the Star must possess more than just a pretty face. Auditions are required for any employee, and during those auditions, a candidate must demonstrate her singing and dancing skills, as well as any unique stage talents she may have. Only after proving she has the ability to keep up with the other star performers is the applicant granted probationary status as an understudy. Those understudies who demonstrate they have what it takes are offered full placement in the show as befits their skills and talents. Not only are these women trained in stagecraft, but also in the most ancient of dances, seduction. Colette's performers are not prostitutes, however. They are trained Arcanist operatives, using their wiles to infiltrate and gather information which they pass back to Colette's contacts within the Arcanist organization in exchange for anonymity and running the star. Colette does not take this relationship with the Arcanist lightly. She knows they use her talented performers as a means to an end, but she would rather burn the star to the ground than give up the freedoms she has earned for both herself and the women who have put their futures in her hands. Colette Dubois does not invest in her performers lightly. The challenging auditions and personal interviews ensure the women she hires are the best, brightest, and most loyal that Malifaux has to offer. Once hired, these fortunate entertainers learn that, in addition to their generous salaries, they have been assigned a mannequin as a helpmate behind the scenes. Mannequins are required to fulfill a number of roles for their assigned performer. Because the cast of the star make most of their own costumes, at its most mundane, a dormant mannequin can serve as a dressmaker's dummy. While operating, they may be called upon to carry stage equipment, serve as porters for the performer's heavy costume trunks, even stand in as volunteer while the ladies practice their acts. Mannequins also serve as dressers for the performers, helping with costume selection and preparation for each evening's performance. During the show, they stand offstage with the performer's next costume change in patient hands, rushing to help her make the change at half the time a less efficient human assistant would be able to. Miss Dubois is intensely protective of her performers, and by extension, their mannequins. She prefers to keep the existence of these constructs a secret, content to let the public see only the core fees on stage. Cassandra is possibly the greatest celebrity in Malifaux, perhaps drawing more men to see her perform than even her great friend, Colette. Cassandra was once the rival of Colette's, singing, dancing, and acting her way to the top. 
She has spread the widely accepted rumor that Malato offers her the freedom to entertain in a way that critics and audiences wouldn't allow in the more stagnant Earthside parlors, decaying in squalor. A select few that know her best have learned hints of a darker truth that she might have fled here, not to forge a lifestyle of excess, but to escape one of subjugation and cruelty. She never speaks of her past when probed, sometimes even losing her typical wit and charm and agitation. She takes her beauty for granted, rarely noticing the stares she receives from admirers. Yet she can speak with the body men fresh out of the depths of the mines as if she had spent the day among them, and her sharp tongue can strike as deeply as the saber she wields like a well-trained and seasoned guardsman. As the two senior showgirls have embarked upon a new adventure, smuggling rare goods and soulstones for the Arcanists, the star has very rapidly become the underground hub of activity. Cassandra's role has become even more important to Colette and the Arcanist movement as she regularly leads the troop of girls through the labyrinth beneath the city. No matter the stench of decay or the dangerous confrontations they've endured, Cassandra has never uttered a complaint, always standing between the others and whatever obstacle they face. Though she is Colette's apprentice, the two have a strong, fraternal bond. Colette leans upon her for support and confidence. Cassandra commands both in abundance. Cassandra, though, would lay down her life without hesitation for the master magician. Colette is protective of all her girls. Cassandra protects Colette. December's priestesses were at one time equal to their male counterparts. Both enjoyed his favor, faithfully following his laws and commands. Through their tireless dedication, the cult enjoyed a swelling in its ranks as new members were drawn by the honeyed messages of the priests and priestesses. Before long, December's message to the priesthood changed. It foretold of a mortal vessel into which it would pour more of its essence than any of its faithful had yet enjoyed, and that vessel would speak to his followers in his voice, ushering in a time where he would be the master of the land. Unfortunately for the priestesses, the message also foretold the vessel would be a woman. Faith is no match for unbridled ambition. Conspiring in secret, the male priests devised a plan to force December to choose one of them as his vessel. In one well-orchestrated motion, they seized the cult priestesses, cutting out and devouring their tongues. Their thought was that without a tongue, the woman would be unable to speak with December's voice, and he would be required to dominate one of their membership instead. Although the priestesses, now called Silent Ones by the cult, retained their magical connection with December, they were treated as little more than common slaves cast down from the positions of status they once held. Until Rasputina suddenly appeared, the male priest dominated the cult hierarchy. Her dramatic rise saw a shift of power as the tables were quickly turned on the once-feared male leaders, and the Silent Ones were liberated from their servitude. Freed of this bondage, the Silent Priestesses now follow Rasputina with undying loyalty, fanatically devoting themselves to her as both their savior and December's chosen vessel. Wielding the powers of winter, the Silent Ones serve as Rasputina's chosen handmaidens and bodyguards, tasked with the critical duties and missions as the vessel sees fit. Few forces of nature can rival the fury of winter's storm. Freezing winds, blizzards, ice storms all strike with an intensity rarely seen in other weather, leaving a wake of destruction buried beneath sheets of white. When this raw force is channeled into a form and made to manifest, it does so with terrifying results. As the soul wave reached Rasputina, she sensed it contained the power to transform her in ways she had never dreamed of. She feared combining the wave's power with the might of December that she bore would tear her apart. As the wave struck, 
Rasputina diverted the power she would have absorbed and bound it into the soul of one of her devoted silent ones. As the wave struck, Rasputina diverted the power she would have absorbed and bound it to the soul of one of her most devoted silent ones. The silent one, Snow, was changed by this binding. Her skin took on a bluish tinge and grew ice cold, while her raven hair was bleached of color, whitening in seconds. The spirit's manifest form, with its curling rack of horns and claws the length of icicles, embodied the raw primal power of winter. Rasputina took one look at the spirit and dubbed it Storm. Snow and Storm share a unique relationship. As prison and prisoner, the nature of their binding prevents them from being apart for long, and their time together has turned a relationship filled with animosity into something more akin to friendship and respect. Neither is able to speak, but instead share an empathic connection that borders on telepathic. Together, they are willful and independent, only reluctantly following Rasputina's commands. Snow, however, follows her commands and compels the storm, which heeds every slightest request made by Snow, much to Rasputina's frustration. Innovation is a hallmark of Ramos's Miners and Steamfitters Union. Constantly designing new ways to implement construct technology, Ramos's workshop has introduced several new inventions into the Union's Malifaux operations in recent months. One of the batch, the Soulstone Miner, is already exceeding expectations in the field. Intended to alleviate some of the pressures and dangers Union members face in the Soulstone Mines, the Miner is fitted with a massive drill allowing it to dig through solid rock. In addition, an ingenious device allows the miners to sense nearby charged soulstone by analyzing the fluctuating resonations of its powering soulstone. An unintended consequence of this device enables the miner to charge its own depleted soulstones when a soul departs a nearby body. This resource has proven invaluable in cave-ins, where trapped miners were unable to escape, but provided the necessary recharge to a soulstone miner, allowing it to dig its way free of the rubble, thereby preventing the loss of a very expensive piece of equipment and additional deaths. Signaling a push to automate mining operations, the Soulstone Miner allows mining crews to dig faster and deeper without the potential loss of life. The question Union members who have seen these constructs at work ask, how long before they are deemed obsolete and replaced completely by machines? Hey there, gorgeous. Thanks for listening to us today. And if you like this episode, why don't you go ahead and subscribe? Might as well rate and review us while you're at it. Now, if you're looking for updates, you can find us at soulstorypod.com. In case you were looking to stay in touch, we're also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at soulstorypod. Now, if you wanted to keep in touch with all of us folks personally, you can find us on Twitter. You can find Moose at Mooseyfo, Spencer at Spare Bear the Meek, the lovely man who plays yours truly, Albert Long, at Hot Bam with three M's, Logan at KOTL of the Light, and Alex at Roll for Alex. And as always, I'm your Huckleberry.